Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Do you feel lost in the Anthropocene? Would you like a map to chart your way through our changing world? How about an atlas? Well, the Feral Atlas Collective has something that might help you out. Today, I'll be speaking with Anna Singh, an anthropologist from the University of California, Santa Cruz, about the Feral Atlas. Anna Singh is a professor of anthropology, and her numerous books include In the Realm of the Diamond Queen, Marginality in an Out-of-the-Way Place, 1993, Friction, An Ethnography of Global Connection, 2005, and The Mushroom at the End of the World, On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins, 2015. She has received far too many awards to list here, but they include the Harry J. Benda Prize in Southeast Asian Studies, the Victor Turner Award, and a Guggenheim. Feral Atlas, The More Than Human Anthropocene, is one of the most unusual book projects that I have seen or been a part of. And in the interest of full disclosure, I need to say that I have an entry, a a so-called field report in the Feral Atlas. Feral Atlas is a digital book published by Stanford University Press in 2020, and can be accessed for free at feralatlas.org. That's feralatlas, one word, dot O-R-G. Exploring Feral Atlas is like taking a walk on the wild side, as there is no structured or required way to enter into its various conversations. Instead, you are invited to explore at your own risk. There are luminary essays by Sven Beckert, Amatif Ghosh, Gabrielle Hecht, Karen Ho, Simon L. Lewis, Mark A. Maslin, David M. Richardson, and Will Steffen. There were field reports by dozens of scholars from both the humanities and the hard sciences. And there is art ranging from video to poetry to music. The Feral Atlas Collective is composed of Jennifer Dagger, a visual anthropologist, filmmaker, and research leader at James Cook University as well as a past president of the Australian Anthropological Society. Alder Kelman Saxena, an environmental anthropologist at Northern Arizona University, who examines the relationships linking agricultural biodiversity to human food cultures. Faifei Zhou, an artist and architect who explores ecological and cultural preservation through architectural interventions. And of course, our guest, Anna Singh. Anna, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you for having me. Now, before we start, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be the anthropologist that you are? Well, perhaps the most important story is that I had the opportunity to spend five years in Denmark working on a project uh, that we called uh, 
Aarhus University research on the Anthropocene, or Aura, and it was a collaborative project in which we tried to bring together social scientists and natural scientists and humanists. And it was my first taste of thinking across all those disciplinary lines. And I found that to understand something as huge as the environmental crisis of our times, we're really going to have to work across those disciplinary lines. So it prepped me for this. And Feral Atlas is a project coming out of Aura. Even though Aura finished after five years, we're st we uh, spent a considerable more time working on this project. So what, what years were you uh, at Aura? Uh, 2013 to 2018. And, that, and that's where you made the connections with uh, the group that, that, that makes the collective and the, and the other contributors? That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we're hearing the term a lot. I'm sure many listeners have a sense of what it is or maybe think what it is, but please tell us what is the Anthropocene? And um, uh, also I'll note that Feral Atlas addresses the various definitions and debates around the term. Would you, you know, define it for us as, as you find it useful and then also lay out some of the discussion around the term? Well, like so many words, Anthropocene already has a lot of meanings. And there's several that people might be interested in. The first is that it's a proposed geological epoch in which humans have become a major force in shaping the earth. That uh, since the time of the last glaciations, um, the earth had seemed to be in a rather stable geological state until humans, particularly with industrial uh, kinds of uh, remaking of the Earth's surface changed it. Uh, so that's one meaning. And that geologists are still debating when that Anthropocene starts and whether they want to accept it as an epoch. Hmm. In the what, meantime... Could, could, oh, I, could I ask, could I ask sure. what, some of the, um, what some of the starting dates are? Let's go, let's go back to some, the rest of what you're saying. But okay. what, what are sure. some of the various starting dates of the Anthropocene? Well... Uh, some archaeologists have argued for what some people call a long, thin Anthropocene that uh, is as long as the human presence on Earth since humans through fire and through hunting have changed uh, so much of the Earth's surface. But others have argued for uh, dates that come in the last 500 years. One important uh, claim about the Anthropocene is that we should start it with the European invasion of the Americas. At that point, uh, what one uh, historian calls the Columbian Exchange, when so many germs and plants and animals were carried across continents in a way that had such a huge impact on the Earth's surface. In fact, uh, one group of scientists argues that the um, genocide of Native Americans uh, caused so many ecological effects that the Little Ice Age in Europe uh, was a correlate of the increased CO2 of regrowing forests uh, with the killing of so many people. Yeah, the, the discussion of that in the, the, in the Feral yes. Atlas was fascinating, that, that, that idea of the, the, the genocide, the depopulation following the Columbian Exchange has this impact around the world. But go on, some of the other, okay. other dates. Another date has been the Industrial Revolution or the rise of industrial capitalism because it's reorganized the Earth's resources, making them part of 
uh, investment strategies to accumulate wealth. And that's had such an enormous ecological effect. And then finally, the most recent date that's on the table and, and the one that the geologists are the most excited about is the moment of the uh, dropping of the first atom bomb when the radioactive signature entered earth surfaces uh, from human uh, uh, wartime experiments. And I think uh, the geologists are likely to choose that date. Indeed, right now, they're in a big debate with each other about which place around the earth best shows the signature of that atomic uh, change in the earth's oh, surface. Interesting. Yeah. So 1945. Um, so what are some of the other definitions of the Anthropocene? While the geologists have been worrying about whether to make the Anthropocene a geological epoch, uh, scholars and scientists from many other disciplines have gotten involved in thinking about what you might call the world condition of environmental catastrophe that's caused by humans. And it's that vigorous discussion that I've been a part of and which geologists are part too, but so many other disciplines are represented in figuring out what's going on that creates the earth uh, and all the living things on it in these times of human-caused environmental change. And does that coincide with notions of a, a, another great extinction? Yes. So, uh, of course, climate change is a part of this, but the enormous uh, rate of extinction of so many living beings uh, is uh, an important part of it. And so are all the other kinds of environmental insults that human projects have given. For example, the development of very long lasting toxins uh, that have spread around the earth, uh, plastics, which disintegrate so slowly and often have hormonal effects. Um, radioactivity, of course, which we've mentioned, that there are so many uh, different ways that um, human projects have had non-designed environmental effects. And that's what Feral Atlas is looking at, that whole set of Anthropocene effects, that is of this world condition of human-caused environmental challenges. Now, so, some have criticized the term Anthropocene, um, and this is talked about in uh, in one of the essays. Um, Paul Gilroy and Catherine Youssef, for example, she's got a, um, a short book called um, is it a billion black Anthropocenes or none? What, what's, their, what's their critique and um, what are the stakes in that intervention? Well, one of the stakes is that at a time where we can still say so many people on earth are considered less than human, to take humanity as if it were a single homogeneous unit and that we could say blame the problems on the earth with this, this block of homogeneous humanity doesn't make sense. And it downplays the social justice issues among humans that are involved. So that's been one of the most important criticisms of the term Anthropocene is that so much discussion revolves around a single humanity. And However, the, the, the critique is that it's the global North that is the driver here. Uh, well, the critique ranges from different um, scholars and activists, but it's not just the global north. It might be 
the uh, capitalist corporations with their investment strategies. It also might be imperial projects with their government's aims that don't necessarily respect the ecologies of the places they're trying to conquer and govern. So those are the sum of the uh, perhaps culprits rather than humanity as a whole. Okay, and I, inter- I interrupted. Were, do, you, do you want to continue what you were, uh, you were saying? Oh, I, I think what I wanted to say was that the reason that I use the term Anthropocene, despite those very good criticisms, is that it's the medium of discussion and that I believe that words in general uh, are flexible and that it's our job to bring a more uh, justice-oriented view of humanity into uh, discussion to the Anthropocene. So that is also part of what Feral Atlas is doing is rather than a single planetary condition, the Atlas looks at all the particular ways that the Anthropocene is created in different times and places, and that we believe that's how to get these social justice issues on the table. Yeah, and, and also, if sure, the, the drivers are, as I put it, the you know, global north or imperial projects or international capital and so forth. But it is the um, the global south, or maybe the, the global subaltern, who is directly impacted by this. Correct. I mean, it's it is mm-hmm. the people in the in the the lowlands of Bangladesh or uh, Jakarta, and you know, living in Kampung areas that are flooding um, with the river and so forth. The islands in the Indian Ocean and the South Pacific, which may no, no longer be there in a generation or two, right? I mean, it's not, it's not just about the driver, but also the, the impact on humanity, as, as I understand it. Yes, and the, <clears throat> we're arguing to see the Anthropocene as patchy, that is, as composed of social and ecological patches, like those that you've just mentioned, and that in showing how those patches come into being, we can um, bring capitalism or imperialism or other social forces into the the stories that need to be told. Yeah. And, and in, in one of the essays, I think Sven Beckert, he, he talks about um, other, other scenes. There's the, the capital scene where global finance capital comes to dominate the earth. Um, I know there's the, the term has been thrown around plantation scene when the, the formation of uh, um, uh, initially sort of feudal within capitalist plantation per, uh, agricultural production came to dominate the tropics. And then there's one essay in there on, I believe, a wildfire in uh, Canada that talks about the pyrocene. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm talking to you from Santa Cruz, California, where we just made it through a truly horrifying round of fires where close family members lose their home. Um, that uh, what, what are some of the other, the other scenes that are thrown about? I I think you've hit some of the important ones and that where uh, the Feral Atlas team would agree with all of those words is that we need to multiply the ways that we understand the Anthropocene rather than trying to simplify it down into only one kind of structure. So in Feral Atlas, we do that through the concept of Anthropocene detonators, that is projects for building kinds of infrastructures that detonate the Anthropocene. That means cause a radical change in social and ecological conditions uh, so that things are not the same again. And right, right. We, these, yeah. these explosions, punctuation points, and we'll, we'll mm-hmm. come back to that. But the, okay. and the way it's illustrated sure. in the book where you you click on something and, it, and the screen literally explodes is just so um, 
so powerful and engaging. Um, so what does what does feral mean to you? And what does it mean to this project? What is ferality? And and you know, why is this atlas feral? In our project, feral means um, caused by human actions, but out of human control. In particular, we're looking at the non-designed effects of uh, imperial and industrial infrastructures, projects for changing the surface of the earth, the waters, the lands, the atmosphere. These projects for changing the earth have effects that their engineers, their boosters, their endorsers don't uh, talk about whether they know about them or not is a different question, but these have the effects and these effects like, for example, the release of carbon dioxide and burning fossil fuels, these effects help to create what we're calling the Anthropocene by bringing non-humans into uh, new kinds of relationships with earth ecologies. And those new kinds of relationships are what we're calling ferality. Uh, ferality, again, caused by human activity, but not in human control. Yeah. And, and from a sort of literary criticism perspective, the book project itself also has a level of ferality. Like, uh, I think readers, when they start to explore it, will feel that sometimes it gets away from you and you, uh, I, th I think there's a, a line in the introduction about, um, you know, this book is going to challenge you and, and, you know, take you down new paths and sometimes leave you scratching your head. I mean, there's these moments of, of confusion. And, and I, as I was going through it at one point, I was wondering who's in charge here. Am I, am I reading this book or where, where is this book taking me? Um, so I just, there, there's some, there's some meta level games there that I thought were just really fascinating. Um, it reminded me a bit of some of, um, um, uh, not Sven Becker, but Sven Lundquist's books, uh, mm -hmm. like his history of bombing, um, or some of his other books that are very self-reflective, and you're, you're, you've lost control of your reading experience. But anyway, I digress. Um, so maybe this should have been the first question, but what's what's your elevator pitch for Feral Atlas? How do you, in just you know, in, in a minute or two, how do you how do you explain to someone what this project is and why they should check it out? Feral Atlas shows us the patchy Anthropocene. That is the Anthropocene that's always heterogeneous and that needs heterogeneous uh, kinds of observations in order to best understand it. Whether we're talking about crossing disciplines from natural sciences, social sciences, humanities and arts, or whether we're bringing in indigenous elders, uh, BPOC scholars, and other kinds of points of view, we're looking at the Anthropocene through its heterogeneity. To, to see a problem that's both planetary and particular. Yeah. And, it, and what would you say about how it, it the book challenges us to think about humanity's relationship with the non-human world? Uh, Non-humans are very active in this atlas that we can no longer see them as uh, passive resources that do what humans want them to do. In fact, often they do things that are completely different than what humans want them to do or non-humans that we never paid any attention to at all jump in there and gum up the works and change what's possible for life on earth. So the humans here are... are uh, are not tools of human designs. 
And furthermore, they can be collaborators in the worst sense with the Anthropocene. That is, they can jump in and cause all kinds of ecological problems for life on Earth. Right, so we should start paying a lot more attention to them. Yeah, and that's their ferality. I mean, we we may have knocked over the domino, but uh, they're they're become agents of their own. Yeah. Um, so getting back to this notion of heterogeneity, um, we see this in the structure of the book. It is, um, I would say, aggressively, but also joyously interdisciplinary. Um, and um, why, why was this interdisciplinary uh, approach so important to you? You touched on it previously, but what, is, what does it really do for us? I think there's no way to understand the envir- environmental challenges of our time without using the resources of all the disciplines, and particularly those that have emphasized how humans have come to be in the earth and those that have emphasized how non-humans have come to be in the earth. There's just no way that we can work without it. And yet, because of a couple of hundreds of years of scholarly practice, uh, the, the sciences and the humanities have been so widely separated that we barely understand each other. So I'm hoping that Feral Atlas might offer the potential for a research agenda where the kinds of passions and interests on both sides of the human-non-human line could be invigorated by working together uh, to take a look at the non-designed effects of infrastructures. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's wonderful. Um, and that's something I've tried to do with my work, uh, looking at uh, urban urban building and disease and invasive species that go on their own for uh, ferality. Um, so you said uh, you said infrastructure, and I wanted to ask you about that. Um, how do you understand the word infrastructure, and what what does it signify, and uh, how is it a part of a conver- the conversation about the Anthropocene? Uh, for a feral atlas, infrastructure refers to projects of changing the earth, including land, water, and air. That uh, they're material projects. They're public projects, not in the sense of public funding necessarily, but they're not just one idiosyncratic hole in the ground, but a way of building holes in the ground, uh, for example, in mining that uh, changes things in many places. That... Uh, the term infrastructure is often used for non-material things, such as in the term digital infrastructure. We're only looking at the very material projects that change. Uh, so, you know, digital, of course, to the extent that we're talking about the kinds of electricity we need to run our servers, the kinds of uh, rare metals that we need to uh, run our digital equipment, those are part of the material infrastructure and and part of Feral Atlas's agenda. Uh, But we're not looking at just conceptual architectures, but material architectures here, but of all kinds, so that we consider plantation, agriculture, and infrastructure, just as we consider water management and infrastructure uh, or uh, fossil fuel burning to be part of an infrastructure. Yeah. So, I mean, the, as I've alluded to, the book has a very engaging structure. Um, there's several different sort of categories of uh, entries, documents, uh, what have you. Um, what could, could you just sort of introduce the listeners to what they can expect as they click on the Feral Atlas? And what's, what's, what's the visual experience like? What's in, in the reading experience? 
Well, we start with the feral entities themselves, the disobedient non-humans that get entangled with human infrastructures, but don't do what we want them to do. So our landing page shows you an array of all of these feral entities, and they're just drifting and bobbing around the screen. And the I mean, user, they're, they're, they're literally floating across the screen and like, wait, what's, <laughs> what's going on here? But I'm sorry, go on. So the user can, can choose one, but even then you don't, you don't go straight to the story. You first are taken through some analytic tools. So this is where the project itself is making an argument. And we're making an argument about how to study the Anthropocene. And we have three analytic axes that we want to introduce our users to. And the first one I mentioned briefly, Anthropocene detonators, that is historical conjunctures of infrastructure building that change how uh, things can work on the earth. And the second is what we call tippers or infrastructure mediated state chains. A state change is a radical difference from which it's hard to come back. And so kinds of infrastructural work that make it difficult to come back. And the third is what we call feral qualities. And there, here we're moving to the non-humans and the kinds of agilities they have, the ways they learn or adapt or evolve to take advantage of those human infrastructures and to uh, get up to their feral activities. So we, we draw users into those three axes analysis, even as then we treat uh, them to the actual stories of these feral entities, each by a professional observer who has uh, worked uh, to understand how this feral entity has come into being and what it's up to. So simply navigating this this digital book, the the reader, viewer, listener is forced to um, interact with these uh, theoretical uh, principles that you're 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 teaching. So it's it's very sort yes. of uh, just amazing pedagogical um, experience. Let, let's talk about the detonators in a bit more detail. Um, uh, you have them listed as invasion, empire, capital, and acceleration. Could you walk us through each of these? And we've already talked on uh, talked a bit about invasion, but um, uh, what are you talking about here mm -hmm. with invasion? So invasion, we're referring uh, starting with the European invasion of the New World, but following this up with the uh, British occupation of Australia, New Zealand, and other examples of places where settler colonialism has come to take over the political ecologies of places. Uh, so when we talk about a detonator, we're not just referring to one moment in history, although these are historically situated very specifically. So our, our invasion detonator brings together past and present in some of the ways that invasion has shaped the world, and particularly the invasions that came from the expansion of Europe. Mm -hmm. And then empire. Empire has to do with, again, European colonialism, but with the apparatus of governance through which uh, Europe was able to create colonies. If there's a starting point for empire, we're thinking of the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, that the European adventures in Asia, where they came up with governance structures in order to rule distance people. Uh, and these uh, included, for example, water management, the building of 
dams, the dredging of rivers, the creation of railroads, that all of these uh, physical changes to the face of the earth in part were to gather resources from the colonies and ship them to the metropole for the needs of the metropole. So that whole set of infrastructures that comes together, again, across places and across times, um, brings us into the detonator we call empire. And, and also plantation agriculture, of course, with its non-free labor and uh, its uh, hyper profits that helped to create industrialization in the metropole. Mm -hmm. and, and, and terraforming. And, yes. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Um, and, and that leads into the next detonator, capital. So capital indeed is the commodification of the earth for the accumulation of profits for distant investors. So that when uh, investors in quite far away places have the power to change the ecologies of the places that they own and manage, uh, this has a huge effect on the kinds of infrastructures and what's possible. So we see, again, plantation agriculture, but brought to a new level of commercialization in the standardization and the ecological simplification and in the variety of kinds of unfree labor that are sometimes brought uh, to bear on creating the resources that we need uh, for industry. And the contrast between the glittering cities and the festering slums, that has been such an important part of capitalist development. So -hmm. these come together in our capital um, a detonator, which corresponds in many ways to those people who talk about the Capitalocene, right. but we have created it as a part of a bigger story. Right. And then the, the final uh, uh, detonator is acceleration. Acceleration is the most historically grounded because it mm -hmm. does refer to this world that came after World War II and this 1945 Anthropocene date, but it's a world that has ecological specificities, particularly uh, the kinds of toxins and plastics, the materials that we have, radioactivity, uh, styrofoam, all of these kinds Fer of things. Fertilizer. Fertilizer, right. right. That come, in fact, out of World War II in many of mm -hmm. these cases and now uh, seep through the air and water and land, creating a completely different ecological situation than we've ever had before. Now, um, tell us about some of the luminary essays, and they're they're focused on each of these detonators. What are what are the, what are the subjects they cover, and what are some of the, the arguments? Some of these uh, we don't have, we don't have to do all of them, but mm -hmm. some of the the, the big the great hits. Uh, you know, like I, I'm a big Sven Beckert fan, and obviously, I think we we all should be Amitav Ghosh fans. <laughs> well, let's talk about those two. Yeah, Amitav yeah. Ghosh writes about empire, and I part of his his argument is that we don't pay enough attention to empire in thinking about the ecological changes of the earth that, and that we should take a look at that the ways that global warming works in particularly in the global South has everything to do with the worlds built by colonial authorities. So he's trying to bring us into the ways that uh, European empires reshaped ecologies all over the world. Mm -hmm. And Sven Beckert uh, is, is showing us how capital makes a difference, and particularly in that articulation between plantation 
uh, economies built on unfree labor and on terraforming and industrialization. That it's in that uh, articulation between those two things that we get the commodification of the earth. Yeah, I think world historians will get very, very excited when they start to hear about this. I and mean, this is just exactly what my little subfield has been uh, has been up to. Um, um, now, the 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 book also has dozens of these field reports. How 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 many total are there of the field reports? There's seventy nine field 79, reports. Seventy nine, yeah, yeah. And one of them has actually got four inside it, so you can count that. So what, what, um, what, well, first off, what happens when someone clicks on the field report? When you actually get to the field report, uh, there, I mean, first, cause you get first to a detonator and then right. to a tipper and only then to the field report, the field report is usually uh, written essay or uh, scientific report that tells you how the ferality of a particular entity works, a particular patch, you could say, of how ferality works. Um, and in some cases, um, we've included filmmakers or uh, sound artists, uh, so folks who are contributing in ways other than texts, but most of them are texts, and they range in genre completely from an Australian Aboriginal artist who drew us a painting about the effect of cane toads in Northern Australia, where they've helped uh, to wipe out the indigenous predators that were so important to Aboriginal people in that area, to a pure scientific report, uh, such as the report on sudden oak death in California and how it spread through the ornamental uh, plant trade and uh, is now found in so many places, uh, killing trees across the West Coast. Well, and one of the the surprises I think that readers will have is the, um, many of these are introduced with these. Um, I think are they are they video poems? Well, the, the video poems yeah. are in what we call the tippers. So we talked about Anthropocene detonators, but the tippers again that refers to kinds of work that imperial and industrial infrastructures do and that radically change the world. And, and we've tried to introduce those kinds of work by using the kind of Germanic uh, one syllable English words that are very much at the root of our language, grid, burn, dump, uh, it's, terms like it's, that. These aggressive hard words. Yes, yeah. yes. And I think that for me, they remind us of how basic these kinds of work are and the, the, the scale of betrayal, if you were, in which uh, these kinds of work don't do the things that we imagined they would anymore. That where a dump, for example, uh, was a place of recycling where uh, organic materials rotted and formed nutrients for other things to live, that a dump now has all these very long lasting materials and toxins in it. And so there's a kind of betrayal of the work of putting out garbage that we have created as part of the Anthropocene. So each of these shows the ways that this infrastructural work uh, puts us in a radically different place. And to try and express that, we commissioned a series of video poems about each one 
in which you just see the infrastructure itself. For example, in the case of dump, we have a radioactive uh, waste uh, disposal site. We have a multi-species landfill. We have other kinds of things where you see the infrastructure and the work it's doing and try and get a sense of the scale and the radical world ripping uh, effects of these kinds of infrastructural work. Right. Um, could you tell us about the field report on the, um, the human-induced mud volcanoes in, uh, in Java? I, the, uh, in the center of Java, a gas exploration company drilled in a place that was very close to an earthquake fault and there was an earthquake. And then the next thing they knew, there was such a huge expulsion of mud that uh, 40,000 families were displaced Not 40, from this people. area. 40, well, maybe it's 40, no, I think it's 40,000 people. people. I'm sorry. Okay. I, okay. I think it's 40,000 people, okay. but a, 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 a lot. <laughs> a lot of people were displaced by the mud. And to this day, it just looks like a roiling bed of mud where there used to be villages and towns and roads and orchards and fish ponds and all kinds of activities. Um, so we have two reports on this mud volcano, one by a filmmaker who spent uh, quite a bit of time there trying to get a sense of the feel of the mud and the other by an anthropologist who spent time there talking to people and their interpretation of this mud, uh, both in terms of its horrors and perhaps also its possibilities. For example, they find small stones that come up with the mud. And some people think that these stones have a kind of power that might be a way of navigating through this destroyed earth. Mm. Um, one of the more powerful um, field reports was the the piece on um, uh, orcas, killer whales, um, singing and then being interrupted by uh, a motorboat. And the audio, I mean, there's there's the, the scientific information, which I've seen a zillion times, and then the audio. And it, it I was going through this late at night and it literally brought me to tears. Um, I mean, I, I, I know I'm anthropomorphizing here. I, I do not speak Orca, um, but it, it's so clear that they're going through distress as this industrial noise overwhelms their song. Could you, could you say a little bit about that? And also a little bit about the, the importance of having um, a number of audio entries in here. Well, first, maybe I'll call out to Susanna Blackwell, who wrote that entry. She is a Santa Cruz uh, acoustic scientist who studies whales and the relationship particularly of gas prospecting uh, to the whales because it makes this loud burst of noise. And uh, as she points out in her entry, there's no barriers. You can't go into a room and close the door. That in the ocean, the uh, sound travels for miles and miles and it disrupts systems of communications of all the marine mammals that depend on sound to talk to each other. Yeah, I mean it was just, it was just absolutely gut wrenching, and then and then I was surprised um, 
when I came across one field report that was a, uh, a remake of an Indonesian love song from the early 1960s, uh, Ginger Ginger, um, that uh, is remade as, I, um, I think it's sort of a dubstep uh, a DJ version. And this is a song that was initially a, a pop song, a love song that became associated with the Indonesian Communist Party, the PKI. And then when Suharto came to power and unloosed his blood purge of Indonesian communists and, and union leaders and feminists and writers and anybody who ran afoul of this, um, this new order, um, that song uh, could get you killed or thrown in jail. What, why, why is this in there? A genter is a, a plant, actually an invasive species mm-hmm. that was introduced probably through the botanical gardens originally, and it grows really well in wet rice fields. And uh, it uh, invades the rice fields, but also grows around them. And it, part of what became interesting about it is that because it's not planted, poor people could gather genter and in times of stress and poverty, they could eat it as a vegetable. It was uh, gathered and uh, carried to the market. And the song describes the uh, picking of genshare and the bringing it to market. So it's a, a important food source for the poor. And it's in that uh, history that the song was written and then became politicized precisely because it was speaking for the poor uh, at a time then when a uh, right-wing dictatorship made that a criminal act. Uh, but the song itself is a haunting folk song. And so the ability of a digital site to play the music, uh, to me, is very moving so that the user can read the entry about this tangled political history in which plants aren't just plants, but they also come to mean things within particular political histories. Uh, The user can read that and listen to the song and be moved by this little melody at the same time. So we have a number of audio uh, entries, uh, including some by uh, Anna Frieza, a sound artist who has done a number of the tipper sound videos that uh, are ask you to listen to the sounds of infrastructural work. Yeah, that that connection between this uh, this song, and I knew it was about this plant, um, but then it, connecting it to being an invasive species and the larger environmental component, and then it's it sort of resituated the way I thought about um, the the Indonesian genocide in, in this, this whole new frame. Um, um, they say that uh, during uh, the new order, which was the, um, uh, the period uh, that followed the um, massacre of so many communists. The 32-year 30, Suharto right. dictatorship. Yeah. Right. That uh, leftists would receive a phone call and they would hear that song on the other end of the phone and without any words, and it just meant we're watching you, you're in danger. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, you've, been, you've been really generous with your time. Um, and I, I mean, I, I could talk for hours about this. I mean, and, and the, the project is so big. Um, I asked you before we started recording, um, you know, what, what would, this is a digital book, but what would it look like in print form? And, and you, what, what was the word count? 
before we put any of the entries about uh, COVID in it, yeah, yeah. it was 330,000 words. So it's something like two, three books stuck on top of each other. Oh, it's enormous. And then there's the visual and the audio. And um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it's something I'll be returning to again and again and again, and I'm definitely going to be sending my graduate students to interact with my, I teach a world history master's seminar. And I think this will be so powerful for them. But um, before, before I let you go, I just had two more questions for you. Um, first, um, can you suggest two other books that listeners um, uh, should look at um, related to this conversation? I did think of two books that I wanted to recommend. These are both academic books, but really readable, I think. And one is by my uh, colleague at UC Santa Cruz, uh, Julie Guthman. It's called Wilted. Pathogens, Chemicals, and the Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry. And it's about the California strawberry industries and what it's like for an agricultural sector to get addicted to poison. That from the preparing of seedlings to every step on the way, the farmers get so dependent on uh, poisons that kill fungi in the soil and that have completely changed the ecology of California's soils. Uh, that they can't run the industry without these chemicals. And that's part of the problem of the Anthropocene. It's kind of an addiction to poison uh, that we might need to think about. Yeah, yeah. And, and Santa Cruz is situated just north of Watsonville um, and Castroville in the Salinas Valley, which is this major strawberry producing region. The second book I wanted to mention is Robert Bullard and Beverly Wright's The Wrong Complexion for Protection how the government responds to disaster endangers African-American communities. I think there's nothing more important these days than trying to bring the kinds of passions that uh, we heard from the Black Lives Matter movement and the questions of environmental damage that are happening because many of the environmental problems are specifically uh, situated in communities of color that we've heard a lot about how COVID affects uh, communities of color uh, more strongly because of the problems in living conditions and working conditions. So uh, Bullard and Wright talk about this history of situating environmental wastes in communities of color, uh, and uh, they are part of an environmental justice movement that I believe is as important as anything we have today for trying to adjust the problems in the world. And what was the title one more time? It's called The Wrong Complexion for Protection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The subtitle, How the Government Responds to Disaster Endangers African-American Communities. Excellent. Um, so finally, what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next? Uh, at uh, UC Santa Cruz, we've, we've started a center for Southeast Asian coastal interactions. And I'm really excited again about the chance to do a collaborative project uh, with uh, graduate students and faculty that uh, is pushing open our ideas of what's going on in coasts. It's focused on Southeast Asia, but this could be relevant for places around the world. And again, uh, interaction across disciplines is important to it and across the many kinds of countries. So uh, some of the lessons that I've learned in working on Feral Atlas will hopefully help us forward there too. 
Yeah. I know you've done a, a number of really wonderful webinars um, over the past year. Um, are, are you, are you making some of your projects accessible um, around the world through the Seacoast uh, website or? Yes, uh, that's true. And also because of the uh, unusual conditions of the pandemic, which are that so much intellectual life is happening on zoom. We've had the pleasure of having a Santa Cruz based set of seminars that has people from Brazil, from Singapore, from, you know, Europe and Asia, uh, all coming to the same set of seminars. So that's been a really extraordinary experience for me. Yeah. And I've, I've logged into a few of those and they've been fantastic. And I, you know, the one, the one sort of silver lining for this disaster is that, uh, this tech and um, adjusting to this new situation has really democratized uh, a number of these academic opportunities. I mean, I've, I've been to more Yale brown bag lunches in the past couple of months than I could ever imagine. I mean, I, I'm on the other side of the country. I'm not in that inner circle, but now I can, I can log right in and just see some fantastic people. So hey, thank you for, for doing that work and for making it accessible to all of us. So thank you for, asking me to talk here. So yeah, yeah. So I again, on, on a, I think, thank you so much for speaking with us. And um, it's a real pleasure. Okay. So this has been a conversation with Anna Singh of UC Santa Cruz about the Feral Atlas, published by Stanford University Press and available free at feralatlas.org. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>